and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. It is my great pleasure to talk today with Nicholas Boggs about the new edition of James Baldwin's Little Man, Little Man. Nicholas Boggs was an undergraduate at Yale when he discovered James Baldwin's out-of-print children's book for adults, Little Man, Little Man, A Story of Childhood, published in 1976. And he discovered this text at the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library. The senior thesis he wrote about it was published in the anthology James Baldwin Now. A subsequent essay on Little Man, Little Man that draws on his interviews in Paris with the book's illustrator, French artist Joran Kazak, appears in the Cambridge Companion to James Baldwin, published in 2015. His research led him to co-edit and write the introduction to a new edition of Little Man, Little Man, published by Duke University Press this year, 2018, which the New York Times wrote, and I quote, couldn't be more timely, and Entertainment Weekly hailed as brilliant essential. The recipient of fellowships from Yaddo, McDowell, and the Camargo Foundation, Nicholas Boggs is currently at work on a literary biography of Baldwin, forthcoming from Farrar, Strauss, and Jewell. Um, Nicholas, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today to talk about Little Man, Little Man. So thank Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So in the kind of narrative that I just read about how this edition of the book came to be, um, we learned that you first encountered Little Man, Little Man at the Beinecke Rare Books Library at Yale. What drew you to the work and what made you decide that this work needs to be made available to an audience of readers today? Well, I was enrolled, this was in the mid-90s, I was taking what I believe was the first class at Yale ever devoted uh, solely uh, to the work of James Baldwin, Mm -hmm. and I knew that I wanted to write a senior thesis about him. I had read pretty much everything Baldwin had ever written, um, because I had actually started reading him in high school at the public schools in Washington, D.C., and then in the class we read everything he wrote, and the professor, uh, Maurice Wallace, mentioned that there was a children's book by Baldwin, and I'd never heard of it. Uh, so yes, I went to the Beinecke and um, was immediately uh, sort of drawn into uh, both the text itself aesthetically and also the story behind it. Um, uh, there was only a short paragraph in David Leeming's really wonderful biography about Baldwin concerning Yoran Kazak. So I emailed him and I asked him if he could put me in touch with him or had more information. And he told me, he wrote back and he said, I'm sorry, but I never met him and I think he's dead. And it wasn't until about five years later that I emailed some art historians in Paris just to see if perhaps I could get more information, leaving my phone number. And a few weeks later, uh, a raspy French accented old man called me from Paris. (laughs) Wow. That's, that's such an amazing story. Just thinking about the circulation um, of the text uh, at once, you know, the text and the images um, and it's kind of international geography between the United States and Paris. Um, but one of the things that I'm really interested, I mean, the, the thing that's most eye-catching, I think, is is not only that Baldwin writes a children's book, but that it's an illustrated book. Um, and so you write an introduction to this edition that just came out with Duke University Press, and you talk about Baldwin's framing of the book as, and I'm quoting here, a child's story for adults. 
what does this mean? And who is the book's imagined reader? So both at the time that Baldwin first published this child story for adults in 1976, um, and also who's the imagined reader with this reprinting in 2018? That's a terrific question because it's, it's one of many mysteries around this book is, is, is just the question of genre. So uh, in the edition that was published, uh, there were two editions that were published in 1976, one by Dial Press, one by Michael Joseph, and one of them described it as a child story for adults. Another one described it as a children's book for adults and an adult's book for children. In uh, the typescripts that you can find about it uh, at uh, the Schomburg, he, he writes a child story, crosses that out, and then writes a children's story. So I think that, you know, it's sort of for us collectively now as readers to figure out um, what those designations mean. But I will say in, in terms of the readership that he was imagining at publication, uh, for sure he said that it was designed um, to address, quote, uh, the self-esteem of black children. So it was written for black children and their families, but it was also dedicated to Buford Delaney, uh, his mentor, the black, you know, terrific black painter who lived in Paris for many years, um, but was in Greenwich Village and met Baldwin when he was a teenager. At the time, Delaney was uh, suffering from what they believe is the late stages of schizophrenia, and he was losing his memory. And so uh, this book was in part supposed to sort of entertain uh, Delaney, and it was Delaney who had introduced to Baldwin to Joran Kazak in Paris in the late 1950s. But of course, uh, for anyone who's read or will read uh, the foreword and afterward to this book, its origins uh, really come from Baldwin's family. So Baldwin would the transatlantic commuter, as he described himself, would, would go home often from the south of France or elsewhere in the world to see his, his family. He, he bought them a house on the Upper West Side. And his nephew, Tijan Carefa Smart, would often say, Uncle Jimmy, Uncle Jimmy, uh, when are you going to write a book about me? And, uh, and Jimmy would say, oh, I'm working on it. And then one day, he actually did it. And, uh, and it's, uh, it's one of the great um, pleasures of bringing this book back into print that we were able to have Tijan uh, write the foreword to this book and his sister, Aisha Karifa Smart, write the afterword. And she's actually the, um, the inspiration for the character of Blinky and Tijan is, is TJ in the book. So there are very specific readers in mind, I think, when he wrote, when he wrote it. Um, but there was also a much more general readership of black children and their families. I think today, um, there's been a lot of changes in terms of YA literature, children's literature, more uh, diverse representation, obviously. So our hope, myself, along with my co-editor, Jennifer DeVere Brody of Stanford University, is that this can open up a conversation uh, between uh, parents and children and educators. But, uh, you know, on a theoretical level, I guess, part of what we argue in our introduction is that he called it a children's story for adults because he wanted adults to look through sort of the vision of the children in the book and Blinky in particular, who wears these kinds of special eyeglasses that really allow her to navigate the world around herself, but also sort of see the world um, in a way that looks askance at dominant representations of urban black life. So I want to come back to, you know, the, the story that you just recounted about, you know, um, about TJ and Kareefa Smart kind of asking his uncle Jimmy to write a story about him um, and the way that, you know, these these two narratives 
bookend the story, right? So his um, his forward and then Aisha Kareefa Smart's afterward. Um, there's something, and particularly in the way that you tell it, there's something really intimate about the way that this book came into the world as a request from family, as an act of love. Um, so with that in mind, what was it like for you coming to this text, given the kind of intimacy of this familial context of its origins, um, which I think also opens up into a kind of intimacy of the community um, in the text kind of bounded space of TJ's specific block in Harlem. So what was it like thinking about, you know, this, this conversation between family, these notions of community, um, and then you're coming to the text in the way that you describe? That's that's a great question. I mean, this has been, uh, you know, the book was a collaboration itself between a painter, you know, a, a white French painter who had never been to Harlem, had never been to the United States, and a, you know, internationally famous um, American Black American writer, um, and um, so, but also bringing it back into print has been a collaboration. I mean, not only did I track down Yoran Kazak and interview him, I met his wife. Uh, their son, who was Baldwin's godson, uh, the other children of the Kazakhs, uh, close uh, friends. They really welcomed me into their family um, in this whole long series of interviews. And um, and then it was a friend who uh, put me in touch with Aisha Karifa Smart. It was, uh, and through her, I met her brother Tijan. And it was a really beautiful moment uh, in September when the book was published. We had an event at the Schomburg, and we also had a, a little party. <laughs> sort of party where uh, the Kazakhs and the and the, the Aisha and Tijan all got to meet each other. And it was sort of a wonderful culmination of really two decades of, uh, of coordination, trying to get the book, trying to get the book back into print. And what, what you sensed uh, in the room and, and in sort of the whole process of bringing it back into print was sort of the importance of love and kinship in Baldwin's life. You know, he was extremely close to his family, um, of course, but he was away from them a lot. And he did construct these alternative kinship structures uh, in France, much of it in the south of France, but also earlier in Paris. And Yoran Kazak was part of that. Uh, Buford Delaney was part of that. And in a way, bringing this book into, back into print was a sort of appropriate way of sort of honoring Baldwin's life in its totality um, across, across, you know, this transatlantic um, divide that that uh he was often navigating throughout his life so uh, then it ended up representing his own childhood in harlem but in fact tijan and aisha grew up on the upper west side so it was combining the upper west side of their childhood with the harlem of his childhood but all imagined by a french painter living in tuscany who had never been to harlem but was imagining it through conversations with Baldwin, uh, reading Baldwin's writing, and photographs of Harlem and of Baldwin's family that Baldwin gave him. So it's a very unusual uh, sort of book in the, in the history of African-American literature, in the history of children's literature, and in, certainly in Baldwin's corpus. Right. So then that, that kind of expands our idea of community, right? So it's really fascinating to hear you describe the kind of community that was formed around this project of getting this book back in print, um, but also the sort of trans, the transnational nature of this community in terms of the spaces that the text imagines. 
Um, and so just kind of in, in the story itself, so to, to think about what's happening in the story, um, we, we primarily see the world through TJ's eyes, right? So TJ's the main character, um, and he sees the adults in his neighborhood. Um, and sometimes they acknowledge him and at other times they act like they don't see him. And I found that really interesting and striking because it happens often enough, right, with different mm. characters, with Mr. Man, with Miss Lee, that we begin to wonder what it means for a child to be seen. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how you see Baldwin working through these ideas of seeing and recognition in this story? What does it mean to be seen? Well, that is a terrific, that is a terrific question. Um, I mean, I think for starters from your question, beginning with, uh, you said, and I think it's correct, although it's complicated that, that, uh, that TJ was narrating it, but um, it's written in, in the third person in, in kind of, uh, you know, free indirect discourse, which uh, is an important uh, part of the African-American literary tradition. Of course, one thinks of Thurlner Hurston's their eyes were watching God, perhaps uh, first and foremost. But I was always struck by that, that yes, it's TJ's it's consciousness, but it's written from the third person. So it's particular, but it's also trying to say something universal, I think, about uh, a childhood in Harlem. Um, and it's moving between, it does move between various uh, various sort of consciousness, it gets closer to, uh, to Blinky's consciousness sometimes, but still in the third person, and then returns to, to, to TJ's. So, so, so that's, one way that even who is speaking before we get to who is seeing mm -hmm. is sort of problematized or, um, you know, I think <clears throat> to go back to kinship and community, it's a way of having a sort of individual sense of the children, but also a way of kind of marking their connection and how they were all sort of connected uh, as speakers uh, and even viewers. Um, in terms of seeing in the text, again, I think Blinky is so important because she's wearing those eyeglasses. And she says at one point, or not, she doesn't say, but Tijon, TJ says he's skeptical of them because some white teachers at school bought them for her. And then when he puts them on, he can't see anything out of them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the book in many ways, uh, as my co-editor Jennifer Brody put it, is a sort of a primer uh, for how to view the world differently. And in fact, one of the many interesting things about the book is that it's really Blinky as the older sort of sister figure who is teaching um, the young boys how to navigate Harlem and also how to see the world um, in the way that she does. And so at first, uh, TJ says, you know, he doesn't understand the glasses, but as the text progresses, he starts to describe the skin color of the children in all of these kinds of diverse ways. So sometimes it's like coffee early in the morning. Other times it's like honey. Um, so the, the TJ, but also the reader, is learning to kind of see outside of these binary models of black-white and that within blackness, the category of blackness, there's a black childhood. There are all these uh, various colors uh, that, that are seen and experienced. So that's to be seen is to be seen I, in this book, I think, a full spectrum rather than the reductive binary um, that you would get uh, in some of the early, say, racist children's literature, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, the images. It's interesting. One of the one of the texts that Baldwin gave to Yoran Kazakh was the Black Book, uh, edited by Toni Morrison, which sort of a compendium in history of representations of of African Americans. 
you know, uh, and including Sambo images and stuff like that. So uh, I think this book is sort of engaging and combating um, those kinds of stereotypes. Um, and I could say much more about, about Blinky, who in, in many ways, you know, there's this beautiful image of, of her in the middle of the book, all orange with her eyeglasses blinking and her, her face is only sort of partially painted. And I asked Joran Kozak, he did that a lot in these images. The children's faces were partially painted. And I said, why? And he said, well, that he and Baldwin always talked about, quote, that like in the full light, no one is fully black or fully white. That, that, that's really deep um, <laughs> because I'm, I'm really fascinated and, and struck by what you're, what you're saying here about what it means to see differently, uh, what it means to see a spectrum, what it means to see nuance. Um, and as I was reading, I realized that I have, I think, lost my child's imagination because I don't really know how to read an illustrated book anymore. Um, hmm. So I'm, I'm really glad that you you you, you gesture to, you know, uh, Kaza's discussion of, of what he was doing with the illustrations because I was curious to know what you see to be the role of his illustrations. So are they retelling the story of the text but visually are they asking us to read and to see the text in a particular way what do you make of the role of the illustrations in this text well i think it's significant that originally um baldwin hoped that buford delaney would um would illustrate the book but because uh his illness was proceeding so quickly he sort of landed on Joran Kazak as the next best thing because uh they had a, a very similar aesthetic uh, they both we're moving between uh, figurative work and abstraction at different times in their careers. And, and Joran Kaz, I mean, sorry, Buford Delaney had said that, that one of the reasons he moved to Paris was that you can't be an abstract black painter uh, in America, especially at that, at that moment. Um, so I think um, with, with Joran's illustrations, it was sort of the, uh, the legacy of Buford Delaney that he was trying to tap into um, and I think, I mean, there's a whole, so I went, I went to many, many years ago, I went to Tuscany where Yoran's uh, wife was living and she had um, kept all of the original illustrations from the book. <clears throat> and there was an entire version of the book written in crayon, or drawn in crayon, excuse me, first, which are sort of beautiful. But uh, he ultimately decided that he needed, that they weren't, it wasn't close enough, I don't think, to Buford Delaney's um, aesthetic. And he wanted to uh, turn to pencil and watercolor, in his words, to imagine the unimaginable. And this was sort of a favorite phrase of, of Joran Kazak's. And, um, and he needed to do that because, you know, he had never been to Harlem. Uh, and he uh, had to sort of imagine it, as I said, through what, through what Baldwin was telling him. Um, but uh, so the illustrations, I think, are... I mean, there's so many different ways to interpret it, and I, I, it's important that I uh, that people come to this text and see what they need to see and what what they do see. But for me, um, I definitely see it as um, a version of seeing through. It's like you're putting on Blinky's eyeglasses. And here I have to credit uh, the critic Marco Natalie Crawford, who has written a wonderful unpublished piece. Uh, that explained a lot to me about how the importance of the of the visual in the book. It was she was the first one who said and wrote, um, "It's like we, it's like you're putting on Blinky's eyeglasses, where everything looks like it was rained on." 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and this is, again, I'm quoting, I'm, I'm paraphrasing her and quoting her. She said that the book helps us um, see what, see, well, how did she put it? It was a beautiful turn of phrase. I'm going to, I'm not going to catch it correct, but to see past the realism of race, the quote unquote realism of race into the dreaminess of what might be. Mm. And to me that that's sort of imagining the unimaginable. It's imagining a, a, a vision of Harlem life and black children's life in Harlem that the dominant narratives don't, don't give. And it's not, it's both figurative because it is representational of these children, but it's also, it's also abstract. It's allowing for a more uh, abstract and imaginative um, version of black childhood. And it's hard, you know, in the recent, uh, I think of, I mean, I think of things like random acts of flyness recently, or uh, sorry to bother you, or just a turn towards some Afro surrealism. This isn't exactly that, but I think there's a similar, uh, there's a similar yearning for um, an imaginative space for black creativity outside of uh, outside of like the traditional boundaries. Right. And I think that that kind of playing with the genres um, and thinking about what it means to, to, to capture this imaginative space also allows for a kind of more complex rendering of, of black experiences of, of black childhood. Um, you know, like you're saying beyond the sort of um, um, realism and, and sort of stark black and white binaries. Um, so you've, you've evoked Blinky's eyeglasses quite a bit. <laughs> and I was wondering who your favorite character in the text was, if you have one. Well, it changes. <laughs> um, it was, it, um, it, it always was Blinky, of course, um, as I've said. And, but of course, after I met Tijan, you know, it was Tijan for, for a while there. And then something remarkable happened when the book came out. Um, my co-editor and I did a reading at McNally Jackson in Williamsburg, and somehow she got uh, the actress Joie Lee to read from the book. And uh, she read uh, almost, she didn't read little snippets. She read almost like the last third of the book. And there's one character in the book that I actually often found problematic, um, and that was Miss Lee, uh, and she is the uh, the wife or girlfriend of the superintendent. And she uh, turns out that she's an alcoholic, and she was on the top of the building, and she dropped her liquor bottle by mistake. And and the big drama in the book is that uh, one of the children steps on it and cuts his foot and ends up, um, you know, going it's like uh, into the underground, which is sort of a you know a trope in African American literature where he's healed by the other children and by, uh, by Mr. Mann and Miss Lee. But it, it seemed to me that this representation of Miss Lee kind of was the only point in the book where it seemed to kind of almost affirm or play into some, some sort of stereotype, stereotypical representations of urban black life and womanhood in particular. Um, and I was always sort of troubled by that. But there was something about um, when Joie read from it and again, this is where the free and direct discourse, I think, is important because it was sort of moving between the or closer to the consciousness of various characters, including, I realized, Miss Lee. And I was able to see uh, that this was actually a complex rendering of this character um, coming to grips with her, uh, her, her addiction and her relationship with her husband and, and then actually trying to sort of work through it and heal, uh, heal the young child, uh, W.T., who cut his foot. And there was something about hearing her read from it 
uh, that suddenly made Miss Lee my favorite character, kind of a heroic figure, uh, in, and see her in a way that I hadn't seen her before. And that is one of the really exciting things about getting the book republished and getting it out in the world is to to talk about it with people, but also to hear Aisha and Tijan read from it and to hear uh, other folks um, read from the book. It's meant to be read. I mean, it comes alive. It's it's the black vernacular voice that that was so important to Baldwin. So so I guess it's it's it keeps changing the characters uh, my, who are my favorite. So that that reading sounds amazing, and I'm I'm particularly interested in what it means to, like you're saying, have this book read aloud, and to think about sort of the the oral landscape of the book, uh, because music music is is really prominent throughout the text. Um, we have lots of the illustrations that are like full page illustrations with musical notes. Um, we have Mr. Mann who has this sort of record that's playing all the time, and I'm wondering what you make of of music specifically, but of sound more generally in this story, particularly given what you just shared about how how our experience of the text changes when it's read aloud. That's a great question. And I think uh, there's a really smart graduate student, and I forget his name, but he was at the Schomburg event, and we spoke later, and he had, he had some really smart questions, especially about music and sound in the book, because I think uh, if that's something that has not been explored enough and we didn't pay enough attention to, uh, given the, the constraints in our introduction. And I really hope that he and others uh, will, will write will write more about it, because you're absolutely right. It begins, a music, the opening line is about how music is all up and down the street, and you see these music notes uh, sort of floating in the air above the, the, Harlem, the Harlem streetscape. And throughout the book, music is referenced in really interesting ways. Uh, Mr. Mann, as you said, is playing uh, the record player, there's a point uh, about halfway through the book where the children are, are listening to Night Train, I believe it is, and doing their African strut. And there's an African scene sort of bursting out of their imagination out of the side of the building. And in boldface, it says, TJ move, moving in a jungle where he can't get no satisfaction. So it's kind of also referencing the Rolling Stones and sort of the history, I think, of, of white appropriation of black cultural forms. So I think it does have a very complicated uh, relationship to music. And another thing that this graduate student um, pointed out to me, uh, he went and looked at the uh, the box of, the box, Little Man, Little Man box in the Schomburg. And I believe in an earlier version, uh, it ends, um, it ends, you know, in a different way. It ends with uh, Ray Charles, uh, a song from Ray Charles specifically is what enables uh sort of at the end of the book for Miss Lee, Mr. Man, and the children to all come out, come out of this kind of uh, sadness and shock around the, the foot injury and kind of construct a different kind of um, family, I think, uh, and kinship uh, among them that is enabled by Ray Charles in the, in the draft. And in the book, it's enabled by, uh, by this African strut that that TJ does and that Blinky does. So it really is music, dance, uh, that's sort of linked specifically to uh, Black cultural forms that has this kind of healing impact on the, on the characters and on the community at the end of the book. So you, you've, I mean, I think that thus far in our conversation, you've been situating or identifying also ways that this book um, 
is is working through sort of central elements and themes um, in African literature as as a genre, and I'm I'm interested in that because I think that a lot has been made about how different this book is from the rest of Baldwin's oeuvre, uh, you know, particularly because it's a, it's sort of build as a, as a children's book. Um, but do you see any resonances or connections across his oeuvre in a way that includes this book? Um, and I'm asking that because I'm curious to know what does including this book in his broader work do for our understanding of Baldwin as a writer? Well, wow, that's a terrific, another terrific question. I think this book uh, definitely, obviously, stretches back to his nonfiction about growing up in Harlem, Notes of Native Son, you know, many other mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, essays where he writes about Harlem. And of course, it, it relates to Go Tell It, to go tell it on the mountain. Um, but I would really place it in this sort of interesting moment uh, in the 70s, and I would include uh, If Beale Street Could Talk uh, in this, uh, where Baldwin was living in the south of France, but beginning to kind of experiment uh, in ways uh, formally, I think. Uh, it, he was sort of thematic, thematically, he was rerouting himself in black life in Harlem and in the black family specifically. But formally, he was starting to approach it in, in, in more innovative ways, I think, that actually turned off a lot of critics at the time. I mean, if Beale Street Could Talk was a bestseller, but without, with the exception of Joyce Carol Oates, it was not well-received critically. Little Man, Little Man, of course, was almost totally ignored. But in, uh, in Little Man, Little Man, you see this, you know, this genre bending. Uh, but in uh, If Beale Street Could Talk, you see gender bending. So uh, the, the, the novel is narrated for the first time by Baldwin from the perspective, first person perspective of a, of a woman, a pregnant black woman, uh, Tish. And he was really exploring uh, gender identity and really inter- with race, along with race, in really interesting ways that we see in his essay, uh, Freaks in the American Ideal of Manhood, published a little bit later. But he was really working through uh, his own gender identity uh, and uh, the question of sort of gender in America period as it intersects with race. So I think I see this as connect as little man, little man specifically connecting to his entire, uh, to all of his work. Uh, but specifically, I think it's part of, uh, of a period in his life that just now scholars like Magdalena Zaborowska and others are, are really starting to see as um aesthetically and politically daring uh and it's and it's just a wonderful i mean the movie hasn't come out yet but i'm excited to see to see that to see the film and i'm excited about uh like zabarowska's uh, recent book me and my house mm-hmm. is and it really uh it pays a lot of attention to uh, the latter the latter stages of his career which are still under theorized and under under thought because there's this this dominant narrative that that after the 60s um he was in decline, which seems to me um, a premature announcement. <laughs> right. So I, I think that Magdalena Zabrowska is also, um, it, it's my understanding that she's also working on a kind of a reconstruction of, of a digital reconstruction of Baldwin's house, um, just because it's been, at least part of it has been kind of demolished um, for a development that's happening. Um, yes, very badly. Yeah. That that is such devastating news. Um, but I'm 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 really fascinated because you know you're pointing to to a, a lot of the the 
maybe resurgence is not the right word, but there's there's a lot of momentum, right, in a conversation about Baldwin that's happening currently. Um, and in in your bio that I, I shared with our listeners at the beginning of this conversation, um, you know, I I ended by by mentioning that you're currently working on a literary biography of Baldwin that's forthcoming. Um, could, would you mind telling us just a little bit about how you situate that work in this broader conversation that's happening currently about Baldwin? Sure. I mean, absolutely. And I do see uh, Magdalena's work as being so uh, inspiring and um, important. And uh, my my own work would not be possible without hers or without uh, the truly groundbreaking work of Baldwin's premier biographer, David David Leeming, who was his personal secretary. Uh, his 1994 biography was uh, just incredible in that it, it captured... Um, captured the totality of Baldwin's life in a way that we haven't seen since. And, and, and Magdalena has brought incredible um, sort of scholarly and theoretical um, rigor to bear on, on, Baldwin's, on Baldwin's later work and, uh, and to um, safeguarding his legacy and specifically uh, a lot of the belongings that were um, some lost and some retained in the south of France. And uh, she... I think sort of led the the charge of many uh, scholars and Baldwin fans who have made pilgrimages to his home, including myself. Uh, I jumped over the back of the wall <laughs> and, and got to see the view from there many many years ago. But uh, it's a very sad situation because Baldwin wanted that 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 space to become an artist residency. Artist residencies in the states were very important to him. Places like McDowell and Yaddo. Um, and those are some of the only places he able to write in the States. Otherwise, he had to sort of escape to Europe, to Istanbul, and to, uh, to St. Paul de Vance. Um, but um, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought on this one. <laughs> oh, no, no, no worries. I guess I was just asking sort of how, how you situate your forthcoming literary biography of Baldwin. Um, oh, that, oh, great. Yes, absolutely. So my forthcoming literary biography is uh, a biography of relationships uh, in Baldwin's life. So it, 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 it tells his whole life story, but it does so through uh, his relationships with Buford Delaney, uh, Lucian Happersberger, and Joran Kazak. And it attempts to understand, um, in particular, like how his later life um, was uh, not a story uh, solely of tragedy, but uh, one of survival and and triumph. I mean, one of the things that I think is so amazing about his life is uh, how he was able to navigate uh, this intense political moment, or really lifetime, uh, in his involvement in the civil rights movement, and continued to produce important, or truly important, and ever-changing works of art. Um, so with the uh, with my own interviews uh, uh, and also with the new Schomburg papers that are available, James Baldwin papers, thanks to uh, the archivist uh, Stephen Fullwood and others, we have an opportunity uh, to uh, to reassess Baldwin's uh, place in American history and life mm-hmm. at a really pivotal moment, obviously, uh, for when we're still learning from him and. And so we need to really uh, understand him in his totality and and in his in his complexity, so that uh, his words and his legacy can help us navigate our way out of a really difficult uh, time in America and globally. 
I really appreciate your your gesture to to the, to the necessity to to seeing the totality of Baldwin. Um, being being a, a Francophone scholar myself, I focus mostly on Baldwin's writings about France, um, and so having the opportunity to read Little Man, Little Man, um, just kind of gives me a, a much a, a broader sense of of just the scope of Baldwin's thinking um, and and his literary work. Um, so I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to your literary biography that I think will add much to the to the ongoing conversation um, about what it means to see Baldwin in his totality. Um, so I've been, talking, I've been talking with Nicholas Boggs um, about the new edition of James Baldwin's Little Man, Little Man that just came out in 2018 with Duke University Press. Nicholas, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a true pleasure. It's